Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really, really glad you have joined us today. Join us uh, next our, for our next library event in St. Clair Shores on Monday, July 22nd at 6 p.m. That's our next book club meeting. You can meet up with us for the latest from Detroit Free Press columnist Nancy Kaffer and Elin Batanzo, who's a lifelong friend of Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's. She is a former EPA worker and founder of Safe Water Engineering. You can find more information about this event at wdet.org slash events. You can also go to the WDET Book Club Facebook page and uh, participate in the conversation there. We are reading together as a community this summer Dr. Monahanna Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. So remember, Monday, July 22nd, 6 p.m. at the St. Clair Shores Public Library. Okay, up first today, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the very first time that American astronauts stepped onto the moon. Were you alive when this happened? If so, you probably remember exactly where you were and exactly how you felt witnessing this miraculous moment in American history. Detroit Public Television and the Cranbrook Institute of Science are hosting a celebration that commemorates the 50th anniversary of this scientific feat. And headlining the event is Charles Fishman. He is an award-winning author whose latest book is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Charles Fishman joins us now to talk more about the moon landing and his talk tonight at Cranbrook. Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm so happy to be here in Detroit. Yes. Uh, so you have written lots of books. Tell us what grabbed your attention about the moon landing and made you say, hey, I've got to write a book about this unbelievable feat. You know, w- when you tackle something like like the moon landings, you you need to try and bring a fresh perspective. There's literally a library. I was going to say, everyone has written about this, right? <laughs> Twelve men have walked on the moon, and they themselves have written 18 books. It would take you a month just to read their, their books, books about going to the moon. So, so here's what I wanted to do. The story that isn't as well told and, and isn't well known at all is the story of the people back on Earth. There were 11 Apollo missions. There were 410,000 people working to make those Apollo missions a success. The women who sewed the spacesuits, the the men and women who built the lunar module, even the guts of the computer, the computer that flew to the moon, the most advanced computer ever created at the time, that had to be hand-woven. There's an incredible number... There's a great story about two General Motors engineers. There's an incredible number of stories of ordinary people who made this sort of extraordinary moment possible. And you know, the astronauts are the first people to say, we were the visible part. We were the, we were, we were the guys who got the fun, but we couldn't have done this without the, the hundreds of thousands of people back on Earth. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think makes the moon landing, that initial moon landing, such a marker in American history. I mean, it's hard to think of many other endeavors that called so many people to to a, a common purpose and cause the way the moon landing did. I mean, when, when President Kennedy says, we are going to the moon and we are going to go to the moon because it's difficult, because it's hard, uh, and we're going to prove that uh, that when we work together and when we 
focus on a goal, we can do it. I mean, that that is this incredible, um, uh, again, calling to Americans to say, all right, we're all going to pitch in. Kennedy gave this remarkable speech a year after he said, let's go to the moon at Rice University in 1962. And you just quoted a brief moment from it. We're going to the moon because it's hard. The speech is this sort of remarkable uh, uh, characterization of the American spirit, which is we like to be told something's impossible and then turn around and prove that it wasn't impossible after all. You know, there were more people working on Apollo than were fighting in Vietnam mm. for three years of the war at the very beginning. And and if you think about the impact Vietnam had on, on the culture and society, at that time, everybody either had somebody involved in the war or had a neighbor who had somebody. And you know what? Apollo was exactly the same way. Uh, not just 410,000 people, 20,000 companies. So maybe you weren't working directly on it, but you were working next door to the people at your company. 20,000 companies is crazy. There were, NASA was very smart about this politically. Every single state in the union had big Apollo contracts. And then the big states, California, Texas, Florida, and New York, you know, literally tens of thousands of people. And so it was really, it is, to me, it's kind of funny because we don't think of the 1960s and think of the moon. We think of the 1960s and we do think of Vietnam and we do think of the civil rights movement, the women's movement. We, we certainly think about music, rock and roll, but right in the middle, woven all through that was the space program. And it was really part and parcel of the same sort of cultural revolution. Going to the moon was as revolutionary as rock and roll or, frankly, civil rights. Mm. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Charles Fishman. He is a best-selling author. He's in town to speak at Detroit Public Television's Summer of Space event at the Cranbrook Institute of Science that's happening later today. His newest book is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission that flew us to the moon. Uh, we're talking about the 50th anniversary of the day that uh, men first walked on the moon, which is this week. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you remember that day uh, in 1969. What were you doing? Uh, where were you? How did you feel, not just about America, but about humankind uh, on that day when we accomplished something that seemed so impossible. Uh, Are you thinking back this week to 50 years ago uh, uh, when you sat maybe and watched uh, men first walk on the moon? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, uh, give us a call and tell us what you think about the new ideas to go back to the moon. President Donald Trump says he would like to see us do that. Is that something we should be concentrating on? Uh, Can we uh, reignite that sort of uh, imagination that we used to have about going to the moon or going to Mars? Is that critical to sort of recapturing some of the American spirit? Again, 313 577 
1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Charles, before we get to calls, I want to talk about the the stories that you tell uh, in One Giant Leap. You alluded to some of them about this idea of how many people were doing how many different things to try to get us to the moon. Talk about some of the stories that, uh, for you, stand out. Well, you know, one, one of my favorite stories is, is, is about General Motors, um, uh, the last we, we so not everybody remembers the details and I'm not sure celebrating this one landing helps people remember the range. There were actually six moon landings. Um, the first three, the astronauts just got out and walked around. NASA wouldn't let them go much more than a mile from the spaceship. They sort of always had the lunar module in sight <laughs> over their left shoulder because if something went wrong, you had to be able to get back and actually Walking on the moon looks easy, but it's not quite as easy as it looks. The last three moon missions had a car, uh, a, a, a literally rover. A, the rover, a moon dune buggy. Incredibly fun to drive. Here's the reason they had a car: uh, two General Motors engineers, a guy named Sam Romano and a guy named Ferenc Pavlix, um, were working on an early lunar rover that NASA wanted to develop. They were General Motors was one of a couple countries companies doing that. And the rover that NASA developed was the size of a Honda Odyssey minivan. And in, in 1965, somebody at NASA looked around and said, that thing weighs more than the lunar module. How are we going to get that to the How, moon? We're going to have to launch a whole separate rocket. <laughs> and instead of reimagining it, NASA simply canceled the plan to send a car to the moon. But, but Sam Romano and Ferenc Pavlix literally said, the astronauts need a car and if they're going to have a car, it's going to be a General Motors car. <laughs> It'll be from Detroit. <laughs> ex- well, those guys were actually at a GM facility in California, but it was an all-in GM project. And so they spent the next couple of years and General Motors money working on their own. Small team, 10 people. And they came up with a, a, a lunar rover that was the opposite of what NASA had designed. It was it, the whole car weighed just 460 pounds. They made a little scale model of it, 24 inches long, that actually worked, mm. radio controlled. And they took the model to the office of Werner von Braun, who's this legendary NASA rocket scientist, unfortunately, former Nazi. But Werner von Braun had real oomph inside the agency, and they literally hid outside his office and drove their model (laughs) lunar rover into his office. And he poked his head out and said, you know, what's going on? And they said, we we, we want to tell you about this car we've designed. And they talked to him for 30 minutes. This was literally the equivalent in anniversary terms of three months ago. It was April 1969. The first moon missions were planned and ready to go. And so they were suggesting a whole new piece of moon equipment, really a new spaceship, right as things were getting started already. And Werner von Braun was so charmed and so captivated, he said, we are going to make this happen. And, uh, and two years later, there was a, there was a lunar rover going to, the, <laughs> going to the moon. And you know what? That, it was a, it, General Motors designed and engineered it. Boeing constructed it. And it, was, it changed the whole tenor of those last three missions. It gave them a certain amount of joy and exuberance, but it also meant that you could do a lot of science because you could pick five places and drive to them and explore. Yeah. And is it true that that rover is still 
up there on the moon, or do they bring all it back? three? All yeah. three of them they are up them there. there. <laughs> They're solar powered. They have batteries. I'm not sure I would count on going without some jumper cables. Start them up. I'm right? not sure how that. But you know what? The, the moon's kind of a harsh environment, but they haven't been rained on. They aren't rusting. They'll they'll be there for three million years. You know, <laughs> they might so, be covered in a little dust. I think but, uh, when and if someone goes back, it will be interesting to see. It will actually be really interesting to see what condition they're in. Those lunar rovers played this really wonderful role right at the end. They they had a a great wireless color camera, and um, the astronauts drove them 100 feet away from the spaceship, pointed back at the lunar module. Then they climbed in and pressed the (laughs) blast-off button, and mission control could control the camera. And so the last three liftoffs from the moon were actually videoed and sent back to Earth. You could watch the astronauts. From the rovers. From the rover. You could watch them taking off, which was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Dave in Clinton Township. Dave, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. Um, my my concern um, is that we have to now hitchhike with the Russians to send something up to the space capsule or that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have to pay more taxes. We've, we haven't increased Social Security. We're not taking care of our infrastructure in this country or, or our roads. But I'm all for it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I just think you have to have everybody pay their own fare. Yeah. Right. yeah, Dave, I think that's a really important point. Uh, uh, Charles Fishman, uh, the cost of this back then was overwhelming, of course, and, and there was a lot of um, government money dedicated to the idea of going to the moon. Uh, since that point, uh, we really have strayed from that kind of investment in the space program, and, and, and certainly after the shuttle missions ended, we really have pulled back. What If we wanted to go back to the moon, what would what would that look like in terms of financial commitment? Well, let me let me just say let me let, let me say a couple things. First, um, we're we're a big country, and we are uh, in in the big sense a wealthy country. M- many people in the country aren't wealthy, but the country as a whole is wealthy. And I don't think the reason we haven't taken care of our roads, which we haven't, or our bridges, uh, isn't because we've been going to space because we haven't been doing a good job. It's not of an that. either we're, or. We're right? we're perfectly capable of neglecting things or taking care of things, and we're also capable of having good hospitals and good schools and also an ambitious space program. The second thing is Apollo did not cost that much. I hmm. I think this is one of those myths huh. that it's time to bust. Apollo cost $19.4 billion in the 60s. In 1960. In, in actual money spent in those years. There are two years of fighting in the Vietnam War. Vietnam lasted 10 years. Two of those years each cost more than the entire race to the moon, not to mention the other eight years. If we could afford the Vietnam War, <laughs> which let's be honest, we couldn't, right. we could certainly afford to go to the moon. Huh. Apollo lasted from 1961 to 1972, call it $20 billion in round numbers. We spent $40 billion buying cigarettes during that time. Wow. So it, it wasn't too expensive, and it isn't too expensive now. It's a question of, is it, is it worthwhile? That's a separate question than could we afford it. Well, and what what is it that changed about Americans that seems to doubt more now the utility of going to the moon or or, or things like that? Well, okay, first of all, 
one of the another myth one myth it was expensive it wasn't that expensive another myth was that it was hugely popular at the time in point of fact in public opinion polling from 1961 from just after the speech through the moon landing not even half of americans mm. ever said this is worth the money the the question was always asked is is it worth spending this money to do this Never did 50% of Americans no. say that. Mm. Now, people weren't asked, should we go to the moon? They were asked specifically, we're spending $4 billion a year. Is it worth it? When you ask Americans whether whether the billions are worth it, they, <laughs> they, almost always, always, say they no. always say no, no matter what the question is. Yeah. But, but that required a certain amount of political leadership. The difference was, look, we still do big things and we still do great things. We, we don't as often like Google you know, the fact that all of human knowledge is available on a phone in your pocket, that's a pretty big thing. That's as big as going to the moon, right? We aren't always turning to the government. In, in the 1960s, it's a little hard, but you sort of get in your time machine, confidence in government was 75%, 80%. Even after the Vietnam War, confidence in government was still in the 60s. It was Watergate and Vietnam. That re and confidence in government now is 28%. So, so that's one thing. The, the political environment was completely different. We went to the moon because we were beating the Russians. We did not want uh, a, a Soviet flag, the red hammer and sickle, the symbol of literally oppression, uh, of subjugation to be the flag on the moon. Mm. Um, that's pretty good motivation. I would, I would say what's exciting about space now is what's happening right here close to home with the private companies, uh, SpaceX and, and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. If we're going to go to the moon, we need a reason. Somebody has to make the case. The only real reason to go to the moon now is to learn to go to Mars because Mars is so hard, you want to practice close to home. But yeah. we had a good reason. That's why we spent the money to do it. Mm. And by the way, it was a success. So in that sense, we got our money. We got what we paid for. But also, it paid a huge wave of dividends back on Earth. So yeah. it, it was really worth it. But but I'm not sure but you racing come back. up with what that would look like today is what you're saying. I mean, you what, what it would look like today, what it would look like today would be doubling the NASA budget to, to, to $35 billion a year. But you'd even somebody like me who has been immersed in this for years would want to ask, tell me again why we're going? Like, what <laughs> is this? And I don't, if you think of the, the, the defense budget is $770 billion a year. So again, could we afford a $30 billion NASA budget? Sure, we could take it right out of the Pentagon and they wouldn't even get below $700 billion. The question is, what are you using the money for? Yeah, and can you sell that? Yeah. 313-577-1019 uh, is the number on the phones. Let's go to Elwood in Fenton. Elwood, welcome to Detroit Hello. today. Hi, how are you? I'm very awful. The billions of dollars spent to go to another planet, our government puts out, and I've got combat brothers walking these streets, homeless, Uh, Elwood, can you tell us about what you were you were doing in 1969 when, uh, when I was ducking bullets and hearing what happened back here is painful. That our government can spend money, but yet there are Vietnam combat veterans walking these streets 
and they have no place to go. They wear clothes that are decades old, and yet our government cannot put out a team of people to look for them, to hunt them down, to see that every county has a veteran home. Mm. We race to the moon when our combat veterans here are suffering and hurting and hungry. We race to the moon to beat the Russians, to get our flag there first. It hurts to my very core that our government can do things when we who suffered, who suffered and hurt and were killed and watched our brothers, our warrior brothers, go through what they did and then brag about being there first. Yeah. Uh, Forgive me, sir. That's okay. I, I I really appreciate the call and uh, uh, you, you know your sentiments, and I think uh, you have every right to those feelings, um, uh, Charles Fishman. This this sort of does bring up the 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 contrasts that were on display, I guess, in 1969. I mean, this was not an easy time in American history, not just because of Vietnam. Uh, 1968 is the year of assassination here in, uh, in the United States, and you've got all this kind of turmoil. The, 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 the contrast between that and this monumental achievement is, is notable. A- absolutely. I mean, let's pause and just say that, that, that what Elwood said is absolutely right, but the solution to helping Vietnam veterans then and now is not to stop doing everything else. It's to insist that the government treat people who have served the country the right way, right? That's not, unfortunately, in the United States of America, no one ever says, should we build a new aircraft carrier or, or pay teachers more? They argue about the aircraft carrier. They argue about the paying teachers more or taking care of, 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 of you know, health care for poor people. But they don't ever say, you know what? We don't need the aircraft carrier. Let's use the $10 billion to take care of people. That's not the way it works, unfortunately. We are capable of having uh, great art museums and great hospitals as well. We just have to decide to do it. We have to be determined to do it, yeah. exactly. And we, are, and, and we are well off enough. You know, on the... the um, Tuesday was the anniversary of the launch of um, Apollo 11, July 16th. On July 15th, 1969, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy um, led a group of more than 150 protesters to Cape Kennedy to protest the launch. And the then administrator of NASA, it was a little different era, came out and met the protesters. And he talked to them. More important, he listened to them. And he what he said was, Look, if we could solve poverty in America, if we could solve inadequate schools in America by not pressing the button to launch this spaceship tomorrow, no one in NASA would mm. press the button. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to welcome someone else to this conversation. Uh, Senator Gary Peters is a Democrat who represents us, represents us here from the state of Michigan in Washington. Senator Peters, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be with you, Stephen. Yeah. And on July 10th, uh, Senator Peters, along with Senator Ted Cruz, introduced bipartisan legislation that would protect the Apollo landing sites on the moon. The One Small Step to Protect Human Heritage and Space Act would provide legal recognition and protection for the Apollo sites from intentional and unintentional disturbances by codifying existing NASA preservation recommendations. Uh, Senator Peters, uh, tell us uh, how you came up with the idea to protect this site. 
Well, there have uh, there's a group of uh, individuals that have been working on this uh, for some time, and as you mentioned, NASA uh, is also concerned about it. They've developed uh, protocols to protect those sites to keep uh, folks uh, away uh, from the site, at least a, a safe distance, so as not to disturb it. Uh, we decided it's probably important to put it and codify it uh, in in law. Uh, we've uh, passed legislation out of committee. I'm hoping to get it uh, passed uh, today, later today. It come maybe before the uh, the Senate floor. And what it'll require are the uh, the at least the missions uh, leaving the United States. So there are a variety of uh, permits uh, that folks uh, need uh, as they launch, and we're seeing a number of. Uh, of uh, potential efforts uh, to the moon coming up that they would have to agree to abide by these uh, protocols set up by NASA. And we'd also encourage the administration to reach out to our international partners uh, to also be part of that. Certainly, uh, they will have uh, some sites that they may be interested in preserving as well, and we should hopefully foster an international agreement that that basically these are the first uh, archaeological sites uh, outside of uh, the planet Earth. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask, is this the first extraterrestrial area that's going to be protected by federal legislation? <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, it is, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, when you think about the, that footprint uh, that is uh, still there, uh, but if you get uh, some sort of uh, uh, dust storm related to activity nearby, could wipe that out, uh, could have damage uh, to the equipment that's there. And it is truly, it's a... Uh, it was a, a, an achievement that brought uh, humanity together. You know, I still remember very vividly. I was 10 years old uh, during this uh, launch. I was actually in France uh, with my mother, with my family. Uh, my, my mother's a French war bride, so I was with my uh, French grandma and grandpa and all my uh, cousins and aunts and uncles. And I remember huddled around a little black and white television in the corner of my grandma's uh, uh, small house there in Reims. Uh, and just uh, enthralled by it. Uh, and all of the French uh, people were enthralled. The whole country was uh, rooting for those astronauts and was rooting uh, for it to be a successful mission. It was truly something that brought the international community together. And this was a, this was about an achievement for humanity. It was wonderful for the United States to pull it off, but it was really an achievement for humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Senator Peters, we really appreciate you stopping by to talk about this legislation and hope that it gets passed uh, when you bring it out. Great. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Great to talk with you. Uh, Charles Fishman, before we move on, I want to talk about we're going to talk with Mark Edwards, who's a distinguished professor at Virginia Tech, about his role in the Flint water crisis and the lead water problems in Washington, D.C. You wrote a book a few years ago called The Big Thirst, which is all about water. How do you see these recent water uh, stories uh, playing out and the sort of future of safe drinking water, something that so many of us take for granted? Well, I I think we need to be grateful to uh, people like Professor Edwards, um, the, the woman pediatrician in Flint, I see these water stories as incredibly disappointing and and at some level infuriating. Um, uh, Clean, fresh water is the opposite of going to the moon. We know exactly how to provide it. Uh, The the technology is, is, um, some of the technology is a thousand years old, some of it's a hundred years old, but there is no mystery about how to make sure people get uh, water that that is not only safe, it doesn't make them sick, it doesn't... um, uh, 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 contain chemicals that are dangerous. You know, at, at one point early on in the Flint crisis, the the um, General Motors engine plant announced that the water was too corrosive Rusting to make car out. engines, yeah. and they switched to a private supplier. If the water's too corrosive, ladies and gentlemen, for car engines, then it's too corrosive for six-year-old boys and girls. And so I, I, I think 
Um, I think it's a failure of the water community, which in general is spectacular, thoughtful, careful, committed. And it's and and since Flint came to light, it's an it's an ongoing failure of of the politics of America to make sure that this is um, taken care of. And let's be clear: climate change is going to make everything worse. All climate change impacts are water impacts, except for simply walking outside and finding it hot. Mm. Everything else is related to too much water, too little water, or water in the wrong place. And we have got to do better. We've got to wake up about this. Yeah. Uh, okay, Charles Fishman, uh, author of uh, the book One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. You're going to be at the Cranbrook Institute of Science tonight. What time is that? Uh, uh, from 7 to 9. From 7 to 9. All right. Uh, we will see you there. And thanks very much for stopping by here. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah. All right. Up next, uh, we are going to talk with uh, distinguished professor Mark Edwards about how what happened in Washington, D.C. led him to conduct his research in Flint. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Thank you.